Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. All right, Wednesday night edition of the pod and a new guest that I wanted to bring on, a guy whose work has intrigued me, even going back to 2002 when I first started reading him. He's a bit of a shadowy figure because his Twitter handle is kind of doesn't isn't really very self-explanatory, but uh, his name is Ben Taylor. He's been doing an awesome series at his site, backpicks.com, with doing some historical rankings from a different perspective and with some data that I haven't seen anywhere else. So I wanted to have him on the show talk a little bit about his philosophy and then get into uh, the historical rankings uh, that he's done he still has eight to go but i wanted to talk to him about his methodology and where he is uh so far through the uh nine through 40 and then maybe we'll have him back on to talk about his top eight but uh enough introduction here we were just talking before the show of how i don't do that much introduction but uh here's uh ben taylor how you doing man thanks for having me i'm, I'm glad to be here and uh i have been described as many things i don't know if shadowy figure is one of them <laughs> um well although well, so, it's so your your <laughs> your twitter handle is lg35 where does that come from uh because that is not in fact your initials yeah wow no one has ever asked me that um so lg is for the phonetic letters l and g just spelled out yeah and that that actually comes from uh a nickname that a girlfriend gave me a very long time ago um which stands for something that i can't repeat on air <laughs> And, um, and, uh, and the 35 was my number when I played. All right. Well, that's, uh, <laughs> that's a great way to get started. Um, yeah, I, I never really knew what that was. So, so it's just one of those sort of, you just have so many sunk costs now with that handle that you don't want to want to change it. You know, you can just change it and like, you don't lose any followers. I, I, I used to be the team rebound, uh, back when I was working as a lawyer and I wasn't sure whether I wanted people to know who I was at the law firm. I wasn't sure how they're going to take it. And then when I started with basketball insiders, I changed it to name. Duncan NBA and I didn't lose any of my like you know 400 followers or, or whatever that I had at the time you know it's serendipitous because I was just thinking today is that just stuck in stone forever or can I change it um so maybe I will now maybe you've inspired me <laughs> so I I introed you uh shadowy figure intro aside you do have a little bit different of an approach to analytics to talking about basketball uh you have your book that you've written as well uh, which we'll talk about but what do you think it kind of separates your philosophy and some of your ideas from some of the stuff that we see more in mainstream NBA analysis. Well, I think the there's this classic dichotomy that exists between the the eye test or film heavy folks and the analytics crowd. Um, and I've always kind of felt that that was a false dichotomy. That whether even going back to in in high school when I played or or would try to scout the opponent, you kind of want both, right? Um, and I think there's a, a as a social scientist, there's a bent there as well where you're, you're 
you're thinking like, okay, I wouldn't just get the data or measurements of anything. I also want to qualify it. I want to understand what it means in its context. And basketball to me is the beautiful game because it balances those things. Like baseball, very discreet, right? Everything's just these events, one event after another. Right. Um, but in basketball, you have this balance of a tremendous amount of information, but you also need to know like, okay, what's the context in terms of offensive strategy? Um, are the lineups defensively slanted? Does a team play fast or slow? Um, you know, what's the balance between inside and outside fit? I talk about fit a lot. So I think that's sort of, uh, I'm unique in the sense that I uh, have a foot in both pools. Well, and one of the concepts that I, I've started using, reading it in your latest series is the idea of both scalability uh, and the idea of floor raisers and how there could be different skill sets uh, that lead to the, those outcomes. Do you elaborate on those for the audience, uh, kind of what you mean when you talk about those? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so the the original sort of um, concept came from all the research I did on trying to figure out the relationship between how much a guy impacts the scoreboard and his championship off. And what emerged from that basically was it doesn't help as much to be able to take a poor offense and make them respectable if you then can't play the same game with better people around you. So the classic example is some isolation score. Uh, back in the day, I used to call it Iversoning the team, where you just be surrounded by a bunch of defensive guys and you give the ball to an isolationist. He can create for everyone else on the court and he's just taken all kinds of crazy shots and maybe he makes them at some moderate percentage, but he, he's not fantastic. How does that translate if you actually put better offensive players on the team? Um, and so the original term that I came up with was portability as an homage to the, basically to the PDF, which has to do with yeah. how well how well do you interface with different guys in different teams? So scaling is a huge component of that because when we say how much does his game scale, what we really mean is can he hold value as he plays next to better and better players? Because there's only one ball and uh, this kind of got hot or big around um, the time of the heatles where you had redundancy being discussed a lot. So that's that's the idea. They go hand in hand. You can have a skill set that raises the floor of a team, um, but then that might not translate necessarily to a better offense, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And, you know, I've been talking about this, I think, a little bit less eloquently than you just did, that there are some players that I view as, you know, having value in the NBA. They deserve to get paid. Guys who will get you from, you know, 30 wins to 45 wins, you know, or or 25 wins to 40 wins. You know, I've thought of right. DeMarcus Cousins maybe as a guy like that. And part, part of that will be, you know, maybe because they're not as good defensively. Cousins, it's interesting, you know, he hasn't played with a lot of other star talent, um, but is a guy with who's really high usage, not the greatest efficiency. He can at least shoot now, which he couldn't before, but then it has some defensive limitations. And, uh, you know, I don't know, would you see him as kind of an example, the type of player that you're talking about in today's game? He possibly. Um, Cousins, to me, is out of all the players in my sort of historical Rolodex, he's the biggest mystery to me. Um, <laughs> because that, that's fortuitous. He, yeah, and I, I'm, it is. We, we didn't we didn't plan this beforehand or anything um it was impromptu that you just brought him up and he has this incredible statistical portfolio i mean he's clearly a very skilled passer he's now a big that can hit threes um he's it's not like he's gone the way but, of but not, an, not at an amazing percentage though you know he's shooting, yeah, you know, he, like just enough that you have to guard him out there but it's like if he's like just a spot up threat from you know getting kickouts it's kind of it's to me that he's not like some big threat but if you're guarding him one-on-one -on -one, you have to get out there and guard him it's kind of if he has the ball it's it's an interesting you know there's not a lot of players like that especially at the big position right right
Right, right. Exactly. I mean, he actually, um, he shows up historically when you just filter by bigs among highest uh, box creation numbers and assist percentages and things like that. So he, he it's he's an intriguing case study to me because on one hand, the I think the short answer is, oh, well, maybe his defense is just really that underwhelming. Um, uh, on the other hand, it's like, how much is he helping on offense? Is it because of the teams he's on? And we can get into this uh, later, but, you know, there's this relationship that exists between your role related to floor raising, of course, and what happens to your box score numbers. And sometimes you end up with these really gouty, sexy box score numbers. But as you try to scale up to a better team, it, it doesn't fit. I, I'm just not convinced with him. I've never done a deep dive and, and maybe that's long overdue. Yeah. So who are some other players in today's game you, you would view as floor raisers, but then maybe would not necessarily scale on a better team? Well, I think the even before, even before I really um, came up with sort of formalizing these concepts more, uh, Carmelo was one of the original guys we talked about years ago. Uh, and, and he's almost he's almost like passe because he's such a common answer. But you, you got to think about the skills and sort of the core skills and how they interface together. So if you're a ball stopper and you like to isolate and you, and you live in the mid post or you take up that entire pinch post and you want to clear out and you're slowing the game down, like how is that going to fit with ball movement or with other people that break down the defense. There's this relationship between creators and finishers, and sometimes isolationists don't uh, fit into that scheme very well. So I think Carmelo is sort of uh, one of the classic cases. Um, then one I wrote about for Nylon earlier this year is Westbrook. Sure. Yeah. Sorry, he's, go ahead. He's, had, really, he's really kind of the quintessential one, you would think. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, and, and you see it in the data. We, we just uh, passed Kevin Durant's profile this week, and there's a little blurb in there on Westbrook and basically when Durant is out of the lineup the the floor doesn't fall out because Westbrook he's such a tornado right he can carry so much and create so much and his his scoring rates uh, himself are actually enormous uh, but then of course he's dominating the ball um, and so when you pair him with better players you know it, he doesn't he's not bad right but he's just not holding the same value so it's interesting that you mentioned Mello and you mentioned Westbrook I mean those are guys who have played on some really good offenses yeah right yeah. so so how does that uh, to, to say uh, to me at least and maybe you can correct me though those guys don't fall into that category as much for me because you know i mean like if you could just put a good defense around the offenses that they were on you know you're right at a, a championship level it's the guys who are like you know and, and even if their own personal efficiency wasn't that high they apparently are creating enough for others where they can be efficient and, and being on some good offenses or you can play with a a Kevin Durant type of player and still have a good offense um is there what's your reaction to that I'm so glad you brought that up another thing that we we didn't plan but I have uh, Jedi teleported into your into your mind to ask about <laughs> um this comes up a lot where people say hey how can this guy how can you say this guy doesn't scale too well if he played on really good team and scaling poorly or not having great portability doesn't mean you can't play on good team it just means that your value is diminished the better and better the talent around you it right so you can Westbrook and Durant um, and the fact that they had some good defensive talent there ends up producing fairly high-end clubs but it's the and this is I think another thing about my work that's fairly unique I try not to get too focused on the the one situation that we're looking at, right yeah yeah and, and I think that's a mental trap it's it's totally um, totally a normal human reaction for us to not want to sit there and have these thought experiments about well god what if he played with another ball dominant wing like you know what if Kobe instead of playing with Shaq played with another Jordan 
type? Like, how would that work? And that's really what we're talking. About. Yeah. So, and I think that seems like one of the basis for your project that I thought was interesting. And obviously, if you're doing any kind of rankings like this, it's entirely subjective. Uh, and how you want to value certain things all time is entirely subjective. But we'll get into a little bit more of your methodology. You could do a quick ad read here, and we'll be right back with uh, Ben Taylor. So it's a shame that Danny is not on this show because he uses stamps.com all the time because he has authored a book and he wants to send copies to people and stamps.com makes that much easier by bringing all the amazing services of the u.s postal service right to your fingertips i use it a lot too especially for returning stuff that we all buy online these days so often you buy stuff online and then i ah, just don't really feel like doing it because you might have to go to the post office and send it back but you can do all that from home with stamps.com they allow you to buy and print official u.s postage for any letter any package any class of mail using your own computer and printer they even send you a digital scale so that'll automatically calculate exact postage avoid waste and help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs there's no need to lease an expensive postage meter and you don't have any long-term commitments with stamps.com either you can enjoy their service with a special offer right now that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale just go to stamps.com click on that microphone on the top of the homepage and type in cap space that's stamps.com enter that cap space code easy to remember we talk about cap space all the time on the program they'll get you a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale that's stamps.com and the cap space code let them know that you came from us so this is where i, I kind of wanted to start with you on your project which was your methodology was it seemed to me like the idea is if you just put this guy in any situation uh you know not necessarily by era but just with different types of players you know just you kind of ran his career a thousand times and he played in a thousand different kinds of teams how good how much value would have he added towards winning championships is that a decent summary of, of what you yeah. tried to do yeah that's a decent summary of what's been going on in my brain for the last year or two <laughs> <laughs> well i hope it's a little more than that <laughs> <laughs> well i don't i don't leave the simulator on all the time but it, it, you know. yeah but yeah that's that's no that's so that's exactly it um and uh, to your point you can you can slice this thing many different ways you can come up with a lot of different criteria i wanted a criteria um that essentially served as a very, it's almost overly rigid right it's like here's here's the approach we're sticking to the approach um you know reggie miller comes out 29th that feels weird but use the information and use the approach as you will if you then want to fold back in your own criteria um for me over the years to your point about a thousand simulations and whatnot i, I just it's too compelling for me the evidence historically when you go through these these great players team to team is too compelling for me to say i'm only gonna focus on um you know i'm trying to think of a guy who's not in the top eight because <laughs> i'm trying not to say too much uh, but i'm only i'm only gonna focus on moses malone when he's in a great situation i'm not gonna focus on him when he's in a situation that isn't as good i, I just that feels too arbitrary to me so that's sort of how i ended up moving more and more toward trying to understand how you can build around guys how they fit in different situations how they fit in different lineups i think it lends itself really well to people who like to um view uh if i drafted this guy you know how much value would i get throughout his career that sort of that kind of approach well, all right so, so the way i'd like to get into this a little bit more here rather than the nuts and bolts of your methodology is let's talk a little bit about some of the players who deviated the most from what your pre-existing expectations were as you started this project and then also uh the who deviates the the most from what the conventional wisdom was and the one that really stuck 
got to me which you asked on Twitter the other day which one was your was my favorite and I said it was Wilt Chamberlain because that deviated the most from what my pre-existing expectations had been so when you dove it in to Wilt what did you find about him that's a little bit different from what the conventional wisdom had been about his career you know when I started with Wilt um, because I'm I'm often gravitating back toward the cognitive side of how we sort of perceive the game and I talk about this a lot in thinking basketball um, I was thinking wow Wilt gets really underrated because he's law right there's this idea that when you when you lose people start um, sort of slanting negatively again so that's where I started and then you uncover like wait a second his team's offenses weren't really that good when he was scoring a lot I think that's the first big breakthrough to realize with him um, and then there's the second thing is he actually starts to join these super teams especially in LA uh, and not great stuff happens so then that introduces you to the concept of fit and that's why I actually started Wilt was the first profile I wrote for the series I uh, wasn't even necessarily sure I was going to turn it into a, a top whatever series because he's just he's so foundational and so instructional um, in terms of looking at the relationship between scoring and the box score and creation and fit and all that stuff yeah because about a year I think it, I can't remember it was last year two years ago uh, Kevin Pelton I had him on uh, Royce Webb and we talked a little bit about Wilt and I you have more advanced statistical tools uh, available uh, at your disposal than I do uh, and did at the time but a lot of the players I would go back and just looked at hey you know especially for the big men you know where did their teams rank defensively and then you know going back to Wilt I you know it's like oh he shot 50 percent from the field in that 1962 season when he averaged right, 50 right. points a game and then you and then you looked at it but that was like you know number two in the league in field goal percentage and he has this absolutely preposterous usage so man he must have mm-hmm. just been an incredible offensive player but apparently you know his teams weren't that good offensively even so it's kind of Adrian Dantley disease I guess is, is another way to talk about it yeah it's a, and I think that's exactly what it is which is uh, not to say that either are are negatives or anything like that but the assumption I think there's this de facto connection historically between huge scoring and he must be an offensive force like I, I hear him described as like the most dominant offensive force ever and it's like well it wasn't really actually overly efficient in terms of the the team outcome um, and of course you know we have pace so people forget to adjust for pace so they see the 44 and the 50 point season um, along with all the rebounds that were available and they think like wow this guy must have must have been crushing it um, but I think the other big thing is which I've just alluded to is hey, creation you know like are you are you setting up your teammate um, and and I actually until this most recent pass I didn't realize how the, the, the ratio between the amount he shot and the amount of assist he collected and how sort of outlying that was historically I think that was a, a pretty um, revealing thing for me as well well and so when you you say that are you referring to the idea that like he either kind of passed or he or he shot but he wouldn't try to shoot draw the defense and then pass to get other guys open that's kind of what I took away from your analysis yeah um for Wilt he he has this he has this period in the first six or seven years of his career which I typically just call the volume scoring year yeah and then I think what what is so stunning that people may not realize again because of pace is the shift he goes from he goes from being the team's leading shot taker on a pretty regular basis as a guy who's getting the ball in the post and basically finishing or performing isolation he's not creating a whole bunch he's not carving up the defense like like the modern offensive engines are and then in and then in 67 uh alex hannum comes in he starts this period where i think he per 36 goes from first to like seventh or ninth on the team in field goal attempts and again he's playing the whole game playing 45 46 48 minutes so he ends 
up averaging 20 points a game, but it's 110 possession uh, pace that they're playing. And you look at that and you go like, oh, wow, he's actually not shooting that off. There's a huge difference in how he plays. And we've never really seen anything like that. Yeah, just uh, that change. And maybe that part of that, because I think it was at 60, that 67 year when they won this, won 68 and 13, that he led the league in assists. So it seems like a very conscious decision, perhaps uh, informed by coaching. I mean, and that was an unbelievable team that he was on, obviously one of the best in NBA history to just pass a, a lot more. Uh, and did, so did you find that he was more helpful to the offense then as a passer? Was he really, you know, adding value there? Or is he just more kind of serving as a hub and, and throwing it to guys once they became open, but not really, you know, passing guys open? Yeah, this is a, I, I bring this up in the opening of the book because I think it's that fundamental. Um, the shift from 66 to 67, we're very lucky that they didn't change much in those years. Uh, really, Billy Cunningham, who is in his early years, um, ages, right? So he's got some maturity that you'd have to build into an aging curve. But they bring back the exact same lineup. And Alex Hannum comes in, who had coached Wilt uh, earlier in, in uh, when he was with the Warriors. And he says, look, I want you to shift how you play and pass more. He actually led the league in assists in 68. Oh, okay. And it was in six, and it was in 67 that they sort of, he had probably the best balance he ever had between scoring and passing. Um, but the 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 big, I guess I'll I'll, uh, I'll tease what happens at the end of the first chapter. The, the big takeaway is the offense shifts to become the best offense up until that point in league history. They go from kind of like a ho-hum offense to, I think they're around like plus five um, in relative efficiency or something like that, which was a huge shift at the time. And, you know, that was like, okay, this is really working if you can find a balance between scoring and passing. And then Wilt ends up going too far in the other direction um, to the point where there are games in LA at the end of his career where he wouldn't even shoot. He, he basically sort of uh, assumes a Tyson Chandler role at the end of his career. So he's, he's just a fascinating player uh, to look at. We can talk about him forever, probably. Yeah, and we don't, I'm sure we're going to talk about some other people, but your conclusion that his defense was pretty underrated is an interesting one, especially given his reputation of like not really being a winner. Uh, but then he did kind of this hidden stuff that people didn't really realize as much. And so th- this is something else that, that you mentioned was that we're between 66 and 67. We're lucky that they didn't change anything, but it is those changes in the lineups that it seems like enabled you to, at least for some players or some guys who are in the lineup all the time, it's tougher to do to kind of approximate what we have these days in on off statistics by just looking at games where they played and didn't play or when certain players left the team and went to others. Um, so can you describe a little bit more about what you did to try to fill in the gaps in, in what you call the pre data ball era? Yeah. So, um, if you think about, we have play by play right now, which is the, the basis of on off. And we've had that for over two decades. Um, but yeah, 96, 97, is that the first year? 96, 97 that we had that 96, 97 is the first year we have full play by play. And then we've got, we're very lucky. Uh, the, the legendary Philadelphia 76ers statistician, Harvey Pollack. Um, he published in his logs in his, he used to put out like a, a an annual catalog or something. Um, he did the NBA's plus minus for 94, 95 and 
96. Not play-by-play, but the total plus-minus. So we've got almost 25 years of plus-minus data. But that's all at sort of a guy checks in, a guy checks out. It's at the play level, okay? Before that, um, the, the technique that I started using years ago was to look at the game level and say, what happens if you have the exact same lineup, but a guy misses 10, 20, 30 games? What happens when you trade for someone, which occasionally happens, and the guy you traded for, you cut, or he's injured and doesn't play? So you basically end up with these controlled situations where you have A, B, C, D, and E, and then you have A, B, C, D, E, and F, and you can compare the two. So that was sort of the first uh, technique to try to look back and look back in time and, and get something that wasn't box score based, right? Get something that was more of an impact measurement. That was the first. Uh, another thing that you've done a lot of is hand tracking, where obviously it's not possible to do that uh, on a, an enormous scale. But I think, you know, maybe on average you're doing uh, like how many uh, for this series? I mean, obviously, you know, Bob Pettit, there's not much film available of him. But how many on average possessions are you able to do with your hand tracking for most of these guys? Uh, most of the ones who had a full profile, I would say the low end was in the 600s. And then there were other guys that are over a thousand. Um, it becomes a balance. At a certain point, you watch some film and you you see like, okay, you just you have the offensive tendon. You just they just keep coming up over sure. and over and over again. So right. So then at that point, it's a question of, all right, can I get a big enough sample to at least have a, a ballpark feel for what's happening with the phenomena I'm trying to track? That is to say, passing, vision, um, defensive tendencies. Right. Like how often do you have a breakdown? Some of those things only happen a couple times every hundred possessions. So you you want a bigger sample, but at a certain point, you're like, okay, I'm, I, I got to do something else with my life. Um, so <laughs> that's that's the balance. So tell us what you hand hand check. What stats you come up with uh, that you know we haven't really seen necessarily elsewhere um, in our our uh, basketball uh, statistical universe. So most of them are around things, of course, that aren't captured traditionally, and that means uh, help defense kind of stuff. Um, some on-ball defense stuff, and a lot around passing. I, I, I feel like passing in general is sort of a space that isn't fully fletched out. Like um, even when you watch a game, certain certain passing concepts or opportunities aren't discussed. It's very rare. So I've obviously watched a lot of tape uh, recently and over the years. It's very very rare for even a color commentator to say hey, you know, he missed a man. He yeah. missed a cutter. He missed a guy under... And they're there. You know, I'm, I'm showing them. Sometimes they're incredibly clear. Uh, but so just this entire realm of passing, um, I started with saying, okay, when are you missing good passes? When are you making high leverage passes? Uh, that was one big thing. And then defense can be a little trickier. It almost reminds me of getting in to try to grade football sometimes, especially... Yeah, I mean, it, the, that's this right? is what I've been wanting to ask you because, you know, you have in there like, okay, the, he had a breakdown. He shows some film examples of it but i mean what's kind of your rubric for determining when a breakdown has occurred yeah you 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 have to go in with a working assumption um every once in a while there'll be something where you'll look at the play three or four times so one thing i do by the way is i watch plays over and over they have a yeah. little button that just lets you watch the play over and over uh, i recommend that a lot because it's it's hard to see everything and then when you do that every once in a while there'll be a breakdown but i'll look at it and i'll be like okay it's possible that there's some realistic scheme here where they want to play the pick and roll that way or yeah it's totally someone else's responsibility and asking that second level defender to come over is really asking him to make a great play versus a breakdown those are two different things right the inability to make an elite incredible recovery that covers for someone else's mistake is different than being responsible for making the mistake in the first place sure 
yeah so so, so but it's that, really it's kind of and you know you, you have the expertise but it really is just kind of it's subjective when it all comes down to I me mean, it's really it's and i don't know that it's it is possible to come up with something objective for that yeah i i think of it as subjective i think it's less subjective in certain older contexts i think the game now is is more complex yeah um and the the defensive coverages now are more complex when i when i break down film from the last five years even there's a lot more to saying like okay someone missed a rotation there whereas in the old days especially the period from like 82 to 02 where you had the old illegal defense rules in the the rotation responsibilities were pretty standard you know every team sort of had this like your your high block low block um if you had like on a string rotations it was it was pretty clear who missed stuff there so there there is a subject to subjectivity to it that to your point i'm just like with grading football or something i'm not sure you can ever get around without being the coach yeah i mean and and it's the same thing even you know when we're doing our live call or we're talking about uh, on the podcast that that there is a breakdown i mean you you try to do the best job you can but you don't know uh, for sure Uh, and i mean i think it's it's a a little better to just kind of do it like okay this was a breakdown and this this happened if you're not trying to then say okay this is the breakdown we're assigning you know negative five points for my overall value metric from this like that's that's when i think it really kind of gets gets dicey as opposed to just being like okay this is another tool that we're going to use you know i just subjectively saw that this guy had x number of breakdowns and you compare that with other guys it's not as often you know so if you want to kind of grade it on its scale just using it as its own tool as opposed to then trying to translate it into like okay you know this guy you know these are definitive defensive rankings or he cost his team x number of points with this like that's where i think it gets a little more difficult right agreed agreed and i think that's the spirit to say everything that's happening on the court has some level of context this gets us back to uh you know how i ended up starting to view things as ah maybe we shouldn't just judge that one situation maybe we should think of how this extrapolates to more situations because some guy may um have a higher rate of elite passes or layup passes that he hits or something but he also might have the ball a lot more he also might be to what's happening nowadays when i when i see uh like the hardened rockets right the court is so spaced out oh yeah that your pass your passing lanes are better and your rotations are harder so it makes sense that he's going to have a higher ratio of something and you can take that in a smaller scale and apply it to any team historically right the the contact is going to uh inform whatever measurement whether it's in the box score or whether i hand track it Uh, and so that's the spirit of just saying like here's the data here's what happened um it's a proxy for something it's very hard to get it perfect you mentioned the spacing one of the pieces you you wrote recently was just a a kind of uh, visual history of nba spacing so if if you're gonna say you know obviously we know what it is now with a team like the warriors we know what it is with the team like the rockets in contrast oklahoma city last night had no spacing against the rockets right there (laughs) there, because they just weren't guarding houston or 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 grant or or any of these guys you know so so it's not all teams that that you're going to have that level of spacing but at least they're going to have them try and stand further away even if you're not guarding them but can you summarize that piece for us a little bit of like you know what did you see as some of the main tactical changes uh evolving through the decades in nba spacing oh um it, it was first of all i think it's more important than is ever given credit for when when we talk about history and, and the first thing uh which is related to the spacing was the dribbling and palming and traveling rules um and i have a i have a clip coming up in one of the top eight profiles that was called for a travel um and i hope people rewatch it as many times as i have just to see how it could humanly be a tra- it's like a half a step it's like a 
zero step travel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, right. And so I think we forget that this was the environment back then. And the way this connects to spacing is if it's harder for you, think of like hockey or soccer, if it's harder for you as a perimeter player to navigate with the ball, right, then the approach back then was, well, we got to we got to pass it to places and we got to use screens and we got to dump it into our big people because we can't get space for these one on one players to work because they'll be called for a travel or they'll be called for a, a palming or something. So that was the first huge thing where people are talking about spacing. They're trying to improve spacing. Um, you see it in the old literature, like the 60, 68 Lakers, uh, Van Bredikoff came in and he had this whole like, oh, we're going to we're going to do the Princeton offense. We're going to bring the bigs up. We're going to have the lane wide open. So this stuff was going on for a while, but it, it, it just slowly took forever to get to the then you finally get to the three point line and you would think, OK, we've got the three point line. Uh, the ABA had the three point line long before the NBA and the ABA, when I watched the film, has much better spacing. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were guys had... in the ABA who were, you know, making like three or four three pointers a game. Right. You know, or, or, and right. Taking like, you know, seven or eight or something like that. I mean, maybe I'm overstating a little bit there, but but compared to, um, you know, the NBA, when it first came in in 79, I mean, it really it took like probably to like the 90s for the NBA to get to the uh, uh, spacing and three point attempt rate that the ABA had. Right, right, right. Exactly. It wasn't it wasn't seven or eight, but the difference was they shot them. Yeah. And, and when you you know, you look at the way they spaced the court, they actually had guys uh, spotting up behind the stripe as a weapon, whereas in the NBA, they almost eschewed it. It was like it didn't even exist. You watch some of the, the Lakers Celtics games from the early 80s and everybody's inside the three point yeah. arc. And you're like, you're like, wait a second, um, what's going on here? So yeah, it it took a long time for the three three point shot to catch on. I think in '95, shortening the line. Yeah. Um, and if you look at the historical trends, right, that was a that was an inflection point that it never recovered from. Because even when they brought the line back out, I think coaches just realized how you could weaponize it. Um, so the the long winded answer, Nate, is penetrators and guards have over the years, almost every decade, they've had more and more space to work with so you give them the ball more their assists go up their their points go up and you end up with this like super engine concept again james harden lebron's had it for a while where you're like jordan and magic put together because you just get the ball and you score 30 and you dish out 12 and you know bob's your uncle <laughs> good to go um so let's talk a few about a, a few more I threw of the... you with the bob's your uncle I know. yeah I, well I what is what is that, that from <laughs> what is that from i don't know that's an expression i don't know okay yeah I, I i mean i think i might have saying it I might well I, I got that confused with the like the not great bob uh for mad men but i was uh but but yeah let's uh the good news is i have a tool that like truncates all the silences so it's actually gonna found, sound very seamless um <laughs> who, who are some of the other guys who really deviated in your rankings and you can see the full rankings at least through the top eight uh, i think you're, he's gonna be done in like a month or so with the top eight to um but you've got like nine through like 32 or something right now uh so you can check that out at backpack com but what were your findings actually you know what let's do a quick read here now that i've teased it and then we'll uh we'll uh get to more of uh, the interesting players in his rankings right after this so if you are someone who enjoys making the games a, a little more interesting a great place to do that is at my bookie their site is mybookie.ag with college hoops going on in the madness of march or even if you think you might get a little advantage during tanking season here in 
in the nba check out uh, my bookie when you win they pay fast and without any hassles and they even have in-game live betting so you can place a bet after tip-off should you so desire if you join now at my bookie they will match your first deposit with a 50 percent bonus and you can enter for a chance to win their million dollar bracket challenge use that familiar promo code capspace to activate the offer go to mybookie.ag that's mybookie.ag enter that familiar capspace code which we talk about all the time on the program play win and get paid mybookie.ag promo code capspace let them know that you came from us all right so who are the other players who both either with you from your preconceived notions or the general conventional wisdom deviated uh from that well we we mentioned reggie miller earlier i think he's one um and i've always i've always been higher than normal even just back when he played because i was sensitive to uh, sort of the gravity effect that he had when he spaced the court um i think the other thing about miller that gets so lost is he's he seems to be penalized for coming off screens working off the ball um that whole sort of approach to offense when i actually think that's one of his most valuable weapons because how do you defense a bunch of big men setting screens how do you defense the counters on his cuts uh, i think that's perhaps one of the reasons why he was so good in the postseason um and we can we can talk about that later if you want to talk about other guys in the postseason but he's like what he was able to do in the playoff is kind of mind-blowing when you stack it up next to other players in history so that's one yeah reggie miller yeah and he he wasn't the highest usage guy i mean I, if i recall like i don't think he ever really had a usage more than maybe like 22 or 23 percent you could correct me if i'm misremembering there but it, you know it wasn't like the level of most big superstars that we see but he was incredibly efficient so he's able to be a big scorer and then uh his offenses that he played on always seemed to be really good perhaps because of that spacing perhaps because of that gravity off the ball where the defense would really have to tilt to him when he came off a screen yeah exactly um he his it's interesting his regular season usage was always lower than his postseason hmm. usage he, he gets in the playoffs he kicks it up the scoring goes up and he's got this like upper echelon just incredible efficiency and it doesn't really budge um and he did this against some of you know his most famous escapades are against the knicks and those knicks defenses were loaded um so he, he did it against really good defenses uh he did it um you know at a higher rate in terms of scoring and usage in the postseason but he didn't have an efficiency drop off and i think historically we've looked back and there's a there's a passage from um bill simmons book of basketball where he just says like miller's an 18-3-3 guy and it's like 18 points three assists three rebounds and it's like okay number one he doesn't get offensive rebounds just the same way dirk doesn't because he's out on the perimeter playing away from the ball number two yes he's not a great passer or creator but he's making up for that in spacing and that wasn't something that was really discussed so he's sort of historically been lost in the shuffle as this like the other the other term about him is well he's a one-dimensional three-point shooter and it's like mm, that kind of misses some stuff too because he's actually he's hitting defenses with something that's far more effective than just say having a an antoine Carr uh, jump hook in the post do you like that big dog reference i threw in there <laughs> yeah i mean i think it, uh they might have like played antoine Carr even at the three someone was talking about that at, at times in, in like the the uh in the nba finals uh, that's just uh, that's crazy but yeah it's like uh, and he was really i think the first guy who had the ability to come off of screens uh and shoot a three-pointer um, uh, off the ball you know I, I can't maybe maybe dale ellis would have been in that category too i can't really think of any others at the time uh miller preceded glenn rice by a little bit but those especially doing it with the longer three-point line is as opposed to that shorter 22 foot line yep 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 exactly 
exactly. Um, you know, the the archetype, I, I almost argue that the archetype goes back to John Havlicek, who uh, would just run, run, run all the time through screens in the, in the old Celtics offense. And then uh, there was a player named Sweet Lou Hudson, who was an all-star uh, kind of wing player who had a similar game. But they didn't have a three-point line, to your point. And Miller was the one who, I mean, he started shooting more threes than you would want to shoot. We got we to gotta pause for a second and go back to what we were saying about the three-point shot not catching on. Um, there were people who didn't like the shot because you couldn't make it at a high percentage. <laughs> and it genuinely took that, it, right? It genuinely yeah. took that long for the math to catch up. Yeah. And I remember Don Nelson, uh, zany Don Nelson, who always had these outside-the-box ideas. Uh, when he was coaching the Mavs, I want to say at the end of the 90s, they were terrible. Right. Right? And he he literally came up with this, at least ostensibly, came up with this plan where he said, look, we're just going to shoot like 43s a game. And people were like, that's crazy. You can't shoot 30 or 43s a game. He's like, we only got to make them at like 33%. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think it worked. I don't think it worked out very well. Um, but that's a good segue, unless you want to talk more about Miller, that's a good segue to another player that I, I think is um, is worth discussing, which is Steve Nash. Yeah. And, and Nash, I mean, if you go back to the time of those MVPs, it, a lot of the people who were more statistical analysis focused at the time with the metrics that were available, you know, on off was just barely beginning to get into the consciousness right. uh, publicly with 82games.com at that point in 05 and 06. But that MVP selection for him in those back-to-back years was pilloried. But I think if now, if you go back and look at it, where he was in terms of just the quality of his offense and the on-off metrics, uh, in addition, obviously, to the skill that he showed on film, uh, perhaps those were a lot more justified than people gave him credit for at the time in the advanced community, despite the fact that the conventional wisdom at the time was, okay, he is the MVP. Right. I, I, I think, one, he's he's got the points per game thing being held against him and, um, you know, being a, a short white Canadian dude, um, that was always something that kind of said, oh, people said, okay, he, he may be good on offense, even though he doesn't score much, but how good can he be? And his defense must be terrible. And so the first hurdle to overcome, um, which I, as you said, with 82 games was entering into the consciousness was the fact that like, okay, his approach offensively um, is having this huge team effect. And when he goes off the court, the team, they're a good offensive team, so they don't fall apart, but they're pedestrian. And when he's on the court, they're like literally the best offenses ever. Um, that, that's a pretty significant thing. I actually, I think it was uh, Kevin Arnovitz who uh, did a, a video series back in the day on basically like how good Nash was running pick and roll. That was really the first time, maybe around 2010, that I started to revisit that whole thing. But there's still a second hurdle to get over with Nash in terms of pe- how people historically assess him, which is what happened in Dallas. So when you go under the hood, the impact metrics in Dallas are kind of pedestrian. Yeah. And the, the narrative that emerged was, well, it was it was the rule changes. It was D'Antoni. It was the system. That's what it was. It was Nash got lucky to be in a perfect situation. And when he was with Dallas, it didn't work out well. And oh, by the way, he left Dallas and then Dallas became incredible and Dirk won MVP. And so how good can Nash be? And so the, the, the big revelation for me this time around was going back and watching those games, connecting some of the data and saying, wait a second, Nash, he gets a little better in Phoenix. Um, I think his conditioning was far improved with the, the famed Phoenix medical staff. Yeah. But, but he's kind of playing the exact same way. I was 
blown away at how good his passing was in 2001. Um, and that's kind of yeah. when those young guys burst out on the scene and they upset Utah in the first round. And uh, I think they I think they played the Spurs decently in the second round and kind of bowed out. But you just go back and you look at that and you're like, OK, wow, this is more about fit. This is more about something else is going on here just beyond the rule changes or Nash getting lucky. Fi- final point of the story is, of course, when D'Antoni leaves, um, Nash is still fantastic. So the the whole thing, um, his entire career, that stretch from 2001 to about 2010, 2011, he's just, he, he's he's really incredible offensively. Yeah, and people forget that those Dallas teams uh, as well were some of the best offenses in NBA history uh, relative to the league when that was really a nadir for uh, point per possession scoring overall. Right, right, right. So exactly. Nash, Nash um, you had at 19, um, you had w- Wilt at 9, Miller was 29th, which I think would be a lot higher than a lot of people would have what about the people who were a little bit lower than maybe uh would have been expected um ones from the list or guys that didn't even make the cut <laughs> well i guess we'll, i guess we'll do we'll do the the list for now well so moses malone at number 24 yep. Yep. was a yep. guy who i think would, would most people would probably have in the teens as a guy you know, I, I think he's probably the lowest of anyone who won three mvps uh that's for yep. sure yep. Yep. so so why was it that he wasn't as high for you as for some others because he's a guy that i think uh in part maybe because he passed away and didn't really have much visibility at the end of his career you know people don't know as much about but you know there are a lot of people who obviously are very high on him well he's he's very good obviously um but you're you're right that's a lower ranking than um he's typically given i think the first thing about moses is offensively he he's a fairly unique offensive player he's he's got no ability to pass whatsoever like he cannot um make his pass to him was a shot off the glass to him yes that's yes the, exactly that's the old joke right um so that's number one um he did get a lot of offense through his offensive rebounding which is very valuable and i think that's where i sort of give him a lot of credit but the other big thing is his defense he's, he's when you're a you know 611 center and you want to be considered an all-time two-way player you also have to have some high-end level of defense not that he was a bad defensive player but it's hard for me to see on film or excuse me or in the data um sort of where he's providing a lot of defensive impact yeah I think and, and he, he doesn't really have the type of i mean if you just look at him he doesn't have the type of body uh, or length or, or explosiveness that you would necessarily associate with some of the guys that we know are, are the great defenders today with having a, you know more metrics at our disposal right 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 exactly um and i think he gets a lot of historical credit for the three mvps um I don't love legislating MVPs historically, but uh, certainly one of his MVPs on a on a 500-ish team. Uh, it was a, it was a very strange vote if you go back and look at it. And then in yeah, 83, so, so he won it. He won it in what 79, 81, and 83 off the top of my head. Uh, right, because 80, 82 was Dr. J, um, and 80 was 80 Kareem's last one. Yeah, I think that I mean, I'm sure yeah, we have 80, we 80 was internet, his last one. Yeah, there's no way we could possibly look this up let's just like continue (laughs) to like quiz each other it's not like we're near a computer or anything (laughs) yeah Um, (laughs) Yeah. well 83 83 and 81 i know he had the the third one is the one that i'm missing and i want to say it was 79 uh because it definitely wasn't after 83 so yeah i'm pretty sure that that's what it was but anyway uh well that's that's the second thing about about moses is is his number of high-end years was fairly short right for one of these all-time guys um and whether that was conditioning or lethargy 
sure. You know, I, I don't know, um, but the '84 team was considered kind of a disaster at the time. They had a they had a bounce back year in '85, uh, and then once he kind of leaves Philadelphia, he's really in like second stage of his career mode. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's he's no longer uh, a stud. Um, and then he retires, and people look back and they go, "Well, let's see. He's got three MVPs. He's got a title on one of the great teams ever, and he played like 39 years in the NBA and the ABA. So he checks a lot of boxes. I think he's got to be one of the best ever. And I think that's the typical approach to him. But using this method, he he falls short not only in peak season but in in longevity too. Yeah, longevity in terms of like longevity of like actually you know really elite actual level valuable. Seasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and, exactly. And off. So he, he didn't really pass. So you, a part of your problem then is that he's not really creating that much for others. And you know, as a one-on-one scorer, he wasn't like unbelievable. You know, I think he was good. But then you know the offensive rebounding was enormous. And I think maybe part of the reason too, perhaps that uh, people gave him so much credit is just like that was one of those things that was so incredible that just people just didn't know how to deal with it it just stuck out so much it was so demoralizing for the opposition that maybe that had an outside effect on how it was viewed as sort yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if even just going through the film, his offensive rebounding is absurd. Uh, you know, his his ability to leap quickly. And then another big thing with with offensive rebounding and guys like Barkley had it, too. Um the use of the hips and just like how he would kind of just snuggle the backside in and clear out space and yeah, you're like wait how did yeah. he get there I, I would call that the use of the ass personally but <laughs> but uh but yes i i i, I know jimmy he, he had this move where he you know if a shot went up he would point his toes towards the baseline he'd be almost under the backboard and as the shots in the air he would just slam his butt into guys and carve out space right. so that he's just right there under the rim and the ball could just fall right to him it, it was it, really awesome uh i tried to do that when i was in high school unfortunately i weighed about a buck 70 back then so it didn't, didn't work quite as well for me but every once well, in a while if someone was watching the shot i could like really slam into him and maybe move him a little bit you know i don't and the thing is i don't know if you can do that anymore because if you're big and you get yourself situated way down on the baseline under the hoop how are you going to get back in transition d your co- coach is going to be yelling at you the whole way back yeah so you know the uh, other other tendencies of the game that have shifted over the years like that that kind of make that a very a very unique um, sort of uh, phenomenon in NBA history. The last guy that I thought deviated the most maybe from the conventional wisdom, you had David Robinson at number 15. And he, to me, is is uh, someone that the stats have always seemed to kind of like a little bit more. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think your methodology did not focus as much on playoff success, championship success, as some others just with, with the idea that you wanted to kind of be a little bit more context independent. Right, right. Um, but but so why does Robinson rate so highly uh, at number 15? So to be clear, um, I care about the fact that you can still play in the playoff. Yeah. But whether you end up on a team that wins, that's what I was trying to, right, to right. separate from. Um, Robinson, he's another guy who took me a long time to come around on because I think, again, we tend to focus on the box score and we tend to focus on uh, his value or even certain bigs value um, as a scorer offensively. And we leave the defensive side apart one he was one of the best defensive centers ever i mean i don't think a lot of people dispute that he just has all the tools um pops on film uh, all the numbers historically just a phenomenal defensive force in the middle so he always had that going where he fell short was he had these really sexy regular season box score numbers and then you get in the playoffs and they would shrink a little bit um 
most players have some small fall off when they go into postseason. I think that's a, a natural function of playing first harder defenses. And then second, um, getting to game plan for someone for seven games, getting to game plan against an offense for seven games. In Robinson's case, it was more severe. And this brings us full circle back to portability because before ever thinking about those concepts, you look at this team in the 90s before Tim Duncan comes and you say, oh, I see Robinson can't carry a team. But what he can do really well on offense is be your second best offense player. He's a good and willing passer. He's a fantastic offensive rebounder. He moves without the ball. He can play pick and pop and pick and roll. So you get a pretty good finisher back in the day. Couldn't shoot the three, but they didn't have centers shooting threes back then. And we're going to have to like explain that to young people one day <laughs> that all centers <laughs> didn't shoot threes. Um, and so what you end up with is you end up with a guy who's basically a massive two-way talent who probably did it for longer than people realize. And then the last few years of his career, when Duncan was a little bit more the focal point of the offense, um, his defensive impact was enormous still. He really doesn't trail off until his last year or two. So you throw on another, what is that, 98, it's another four years um, where he was a really, really good player. And you end up with a career that I think it surprised me too. When you look at it, you're like, wow, it's hard. It's hard to take a lot of guys over this career do you make any kind of an allowance for the fact that he didn't come into the league until he was 24 just because of the the naval uh, obligations whereas you know so especially in this era now it, moses came in earlier or you know kobe bryant or lebron or those guys are gonna get four more years five more years and some of these guys who just you know were in an era where they couldn't come into the league that early yeah i i don't and that's another area where i feel like it's an overly rigid criteria but it serves the purpose you know it's you you can then make that mental curving on your own um yeah because because you don't know what would have happened to those guys in those you know i mean you you either did it or you didn't at some level like you you can project a little bit uh but yeah i mean it's hard to just give guys additional seasons that they didn't play uh even if it wasn't because of injury even if it was you know just due to the circumstance right 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 and i think magic uh historically is that uh ultimate example of this because he's usually up near the the goat conversation and people say well you know how can i how can i really penalize him he when he left in 91 he was still phenomenal um and that was a largely political thing where maybe nowadays it wouldn't even be revealed that he had hiv and he would just keep playing so i I don't uh the only adjustment i make is a, a small basic linear adjustment that says the later you came into the league um the less your longevity sort of uh counts because guys right guys now are playing longer and longer so relative to that era which is what i'm trying to evaluate 10 years is no longer you got to get 11 years to get 10 years or 12 years to get 11 years ever yeah and magic uh, was number 10 Uh, suffice to say he would have been higher had it he not lost those years yeah definitely magic um i mean just the 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 level he was playing at when he left was he was still in the thick of his prime and even when you see him five years later with his comeback in 96 he was still like a competent he's just so uh good at reading the game um i i think he gave up a lot i think he'd be much higher yeah and we've got lots more to talk about here but the last topic i want to get to for this show is who was really significantly better or worse in the playoffs than might have been expected and then were you able to discern any patterns about types of players that were better or worse in the playoffs so uh miller was incredible as i mentioned yeah um the other guy there there let's see there are two guys in the top eight um that i i will skip over for now <laughs> who also <laughs> i won't i won't reveal who those guys are yet um but out of guys who weren't in the top eight uh jerry 
Jerry West was a guy who improved his scoring and efficiency a little bit. Again, the the normal sort of expectation when you go into the playoffs is your efficiency drops a couple percentage points. Your scoring may be the same or tail off just a little bit. So to go up is always a, a pretty impressive sign. Um, and then there were two other guys, if you sort of talk about like top 50, top 75 talents of all time. Uh, Tracy McGrady was one. Who, who, who went actually, up in the playoffs. He went up in the playoffs. Yes. Yeah, so you can see how your your impressions and your biases that you form. Sure. Um, it's, it's just fascinating. Yeah. Now, we should mention that he started relatively low in most seasons. He was not a high efficiency player. Yeah. Uh, the other guy who went up, same story. Low efficiency player. He gets in the playoffs is the original Isaiah Thomas. He actually cranks his volume up a little bit and basically maintains the same efficiency, which is pretty impressive. So that's a group of guys. And then I'll give you a couple more who maintain because I think we can we can see an emerging pattern here. Um, Kobe from his like 2006, 2007 to 2011. And I think I mentioned this in his profile. He's basically holds his regular season numbers, which is really good. Two other guys that did that, Allen Iverson and Dwayne Wade. Now, I don't know about you, Nate. When I look at that group, yeah. I see a lot of incredibly skilled wings who have robust, diverse scoring attacks, who also, to maybe to their detriment in the regular season, already take hard shots anyway. That's sort of the pattern I see. But you, you tell me what you think after hearing that that list of names. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's really interesting because, and those guys kind of fall into the category we we're talking about earlier, you might say of, uh, although Miller and West maybe not as much, but of guys who, you know, create a lot of shots, don't take right. great shots, who might be uh when you talk about floor raisers but the the also and, and maybe just because of the type of shots that they take just can never be that efficient uh overall mm-hmm. even in the regular season but then they also just because they can make hard shots you can only take so much away from them and then even against harder playoff defenses when perhaps more of those difficult shots need to be taken that would be my, my hypothesis those guys are capable of making those shots whereas maybe some other guys can't right exactly there's a there's an inelasticity to the game um, that I think m- might might be perceived as a negative in the regular season, but uh, comes back to provide sort of like this resilience, uh, as I've also called it before, in the playoffs. So, b- by the way, a-, a current guy who's probably going to pick up a, a-, a Maurice Podoloff trophy shortly, James Harden, last couple of years, his defensive numbers, I mean, his offensive numbers in the playoffs have been relatively similar to the regular season. Uh, I think he has a reputation of completely falling apart, but it statistically has not been the case. Yeah. I think he, he's had maybe some clutch failures and also uh, just the, the, that game six. Um, and, and then yeah. the years before that, too, I mean, in, in that Portland series that they lost in 2014, he I think it was way below his regular season numbers uh, as well. Um, so maybe that's uh, that's part of that. And then it, going back to the 2012 finals is another thing that people point to as well. And I don't think he was that good in their 2013 series against uh, OKC either. Uh, so who, who are the the guys who fall off the most in the playoffs oh well the the first one that really stands out statistically is john stockton um he's a extremely high efficiency low volume type of scorer and kind of the entire the entire profile falls off in the playoffs for him his his efficiency drops um it's not like he's cranking up his scoring uh, his assists go down i mean the the whole thing for him um takes a pretty severe nosedive uh carl malone his teammate also has some trouble 
troubles. I talked about that in his profile where uh, his, you know, getting into the lane and finishing and getting easy buckets for him is a challenge. Um, Kevin Durant's another guy who who kind of has had some statistical between his like incredible regular seasons. There's a pretty big fall off. Uh, and Westbrook. I mean, uh, David Robinson. Sorry. Westbrook is also as well. So I guess he's on my mind. But yeah, um, yeah, that's kind of the, the traditional group of um, guys who see us see a significant fall off in the postseason and then when you look and break it down i mean i i i want to hear your thoughts too but i I see patterns where when i look at stockton he had a hard time creating his own offense when i look at malone he had a hard time finishing uh in the paint and a a great jump shooter but there's only so much you can rely on with your jump shot uh durant i my thing with durant really is sometimes his handle just doesn't let him he doesn't read defenses super well so if you throw complex coverages at him it kind of it kind of throws him a little bit um and then we we obviously talked about robinson and westbrook right yeah to me i think and stockton and malone are an interesting one right because they seem to be so system based a a lot of times and for malone so much of what he would do was running the floor really hard or ducking in getting great deep post position which stockton would then find him on the one thing actually i disagree with you on i I thought you were a little too dismissive of the ability to throw great post entry passes maybe as a former post player i just uh, appreciate that a little bit more but i do think that uh there's maybe more value added if you can really do that well um uh, forgive me if i'm uh, misstating your position there because I, I think i remember you ding stocked and you're like oh well a lot of these are like post entry passes and you know if it's just like all right i'm gonna hold it there and just throw it in he's got great position that's one thing but if the guy's fronted or the guy ducks in real quickly like i think so many players miss those passes to me to the point almost that like no one even ever ducks in anywhere in the nba these days nate i thought we were friends <laughs> No, well, uh, no. Did I, did I, know, did I misstate I, what you said, or or, or are we just in disagreement? Um, no, I I just I have may have understated it, uh, and, and that's you know it's been it's been wonderful. Uh, I've been trying to keep up with the the feedback, which has been incredible. Um, but what's interesting is I agree with about seventy five percent of the criticisms I hear, and that's a perfect example, right? Like post entries, I'll agree with you. Post entries can have uh, a decent amount of value. So sometimes what ends up happening is uh, you write the profile and stuff gets cut or edited or reworked worked and something just maybe understated so yeah, yeah I, I, I didn't mean to uh i didn't mean to gloss over that for for old john <laughs> <laughs> well because he was you're, you're, yeah. you're spot on right like some of his post entries were fantastic and i think there was a synergy there between stockton and malone and of course to the tenor of the piece i was sort of emphasizing that the the pick and roll synergies are not the way we remember them going no. back in time like nash and amari had the pick and roll synergies that we attribute to stockton and malone but that was a totally different thing yeah no i mean a lot of it was just you know screening off the ball flex cuts right. like that i mean that's what they ran back then more, that much was their, more so that was than, their thing yeah but but the, yeah. The, the point that i was making initially was you know both of those guys whether it was stockton who you know seemed to more capitalize on converting you know only the most judicious opportunities extremely well uh but didn't really ever take bad shots or create you know what we call bad shots or even you know medium difficulty shots and then malone transition quick post-ups duck-ins uh you know as opposed to really going one-on-one in the post and creating really efficient shots it's much easier to take those things away in the playoffs would be my hypothesis that you're you're playing harder you're more locked in they're not going to kind of just get you the way they do in the regular season by like playing harder than you or just being like a little bit smarter uh you know we don't go against these guys every night so they have this great system and they're going to beat us type of thing right agree agree i think sometimes we can overstate that effect 
fact. But yeah, I mean, even right over the course of if you're out there for 80 possessions in a postseason game or 85 possessions, you just take away a couple of those cross screens or just you never give up that easy bucket. Um, and that'll ding your percentages over time. Yeah. And there's, a, I think the Spurs in recent vintage, you know, people talk about, oh man, you never count out the Spurs. I actually think these Spurs teams, I mean, that 2014 was awesome. 2013, you know, they lost to a, a team that I thought was an all time great team. Um, so, but generally, I mean, you would have to say that the Spurs almost never overachieve their regular season performance in the playoffs. You know, I think they have not, the the talk is always, "Oh, Greg Popovich doesn't value the regular season," but I can't remember the last series that they won when they didn't have home court advantage. I think maybe it's been like you know one in this entire era that they've had. Um, so it's really like they seem to be a team that gets a little bit worse in the playoffs because there's all this low-hanging fruit that you can take away during the regular season whether it's you know cleaning up the defensive glass or getting back in transition or just not making mistakes and so so many buckets in the regular season are, the, are just the result of teams not playing hard or, or whatever and so if you're reliant on just taking away that low-hanging fruit for the other teams or getting the low-hanging fruit yourself that can go away in the playoffs you you may or may not be onto something that maybe we want to talk about in a in another conversation <laughs> all right man well this has been a lot of fun looking forward to having you back on once the rest of the list comes out and we can uh we can argue a little bit more and uh arouse people's ire with the with the rankings especially in that top group uh but this is awesome uh, tell people once again about your book and twitter and backpicks.com and all that book is thinking basketball it's available on amazon in paperback and kindle um backpicks.com is where you can find the top 40 and as of now as of today <laughs> uh, i am uh, subject to change i am lg35 on twitter um i i'm probably more responsive there than anywhere else so i uh, always love to uh chat about this stuff with people so thanks this is this has been super fun too and i look forward to uh to the next episode all right likewise thanks this was great reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing uh <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 